Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 292. Today is June 29th, 2019. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. And hey, I got a great episode for you today. And this is relevant for two reasons. One, we are in a really amazing cycle of the market. This past month, we've seen some significant gains and a new record high in the S&P 500. We're gonna talk about that in its current form. But the other reason that this episode is so relevant is that the market that we've just experienced over the last month is a classic textbook example of a relief rally or a counter trend rally of how a market can come out of a bottom with all kinds of gloom and doom and go on in the period of a month or less and hit all time record highs. So we're gonna talk about some of the things that you can use to identify so you can see that in the future and so you don't get hoodwinked into believing the negativity. And then also I wanna talk about a specific sector of the economy that is breaking out, and I think it still affords some opportunities to you if you've missed this greater rally that's taken place. Hey, before I get started, I do wanna mention that earlier this month, we had our meetup in Flagstaff, Arizona. This particular one was a camping boondocking event That was made possible because of the generosity of my friends, Arturo and Heron, who offered up their property to us. It was a nice small group. There was about a dozen of us. I think everybody enjoyed themselves. And in particular, I want to recognize someone that came as a guest. And this was a young man named Nelson. And when I say young man, I don't mean just a young guy. I mean, he was a kid. If I remember correctly, I think Nelson told me he was 12 years old. I was impressed with Nelson. And so much so, in fact, that in today's show notes, I'm going to put a link to a playlist in Nelson's YouTube channel. It's called Trout's Adventures because that's his last name. And you may be wondering, well, what would a 12-year-old boy vlog about? Well, that's exactly the point. He has a video channel of all the things that he's interested in. Everything from trains to video games to coin collecting. And I want to mention this for a couple reasons. Number one, I put the playlist where he does coin hunting or coin collecting, you know, where he specifically goes out and either goes to the bank and gets a roll of pennies or he goes through a big stash of coins and he tries to pick out pennies that are old and contain copper or maybe they're collectible or maybe he finds some silver coins or coins from foreign countries. And what I really like about this particular playlist is that this is a 12-year-old kid that's excited to look through money and find something that's of value to him or of interest to his particular passion. I can really relate to that because when I was 12 years old, I did exactly the same thing. In fact, I thought about doing a well-setting episode where the title was clickbait saying something like how I became a millionaire from collecting coins or something goofy like that. Because I did exactly these things that Nelson is doing looking through these coins. And it isn't that I ever found any coins that were valuable or not so much that it made me rich but it was going through the process of learning about money, of learning about currency, of learning about economics, and all the things that is encompassed with that, it's really about identifying value. And then how that relates to foreign currency and finding coins from other countries, and that teaches you about geography. As a kid, I really enjoyed coin collecting. I found it fascinating, and it led me into all types of other areas that have helped me become the successful investor that I am today. So, hey, kudos to Nelson. Keep it up. I'd encourage you to at least look through that playlist that I have in today's show notes. And for those of you that are trying to rekindle your passion, or maybe you're thinking about starting a blog or a vlog, and you wonder where you should do it or how you should do it, well, check out what this 12-year-old kid has done. He's starting on the right path 
because he's creating a lot of content and he's doing it with passion and he's focusing on the things that he's interested in. That's always the best place to start, no matter what kind of enterprise you want to create. Well, hey, the other thing I want to mention is that I've heard from a number of you asking me to create a new episode and I've been a little uh, remiss this month and getting content out. I always appreciate the prodding from you guys, so even though you don't always hear from me, keep it up. As I hear from you and understand more about what you want to hear me talk about, it always helps me and motivates me to create new content. But what I did want to mention was that even though I was really busy and it was hard to create podcast content, what I did do was what I always promised to do, and that is to put out blog notifications whenever I think there's relevant things happening in the stock market that you should know about, or if I make a change to my model portfolio, which is really code word for me saying how I invest my money. And so during the month of June, and even into May, as I saw this market in a downturn and approaching a correction, I was buying the dips. I was putting out notices of whenever I bought or sold something and also providing some market commentary there. It's always easier for me to type out a couple lines and maybe create a chart because I'm doing that anyways in my regular business. So it's easy for me by the end of the day if I make a trade to put that up on my firm's website at investablewealth.com. Much easier for me to do that than it is to take the time to do a 20-minute podcast. So if you want to know what I did for the month of June, where there were at least six blog posts that I put out there in June, and I know there were probably three or four others maybe in May. Everything I write about is always archived there. It goes back to 2013. And if you want to get email notifications of when I put out a new post, you can subscribe for free. You could unsubscribe at any time. And since all the archives are there with about six years of content, before you sign up for these email notices, you can just scroll through the old archives and see the type of material that I put out there. That's what I put out in the past. That's what I'm going to put out in the future. If you're not interested in it, don't subscribe. Well, hey, that takes us to this current market. And as I mentioned, it's been a great month, not only from the performance of the S&P 500 and other stock markets around the world, but in particular, it's been a textbook example of how a market can recover quickly and move from what appears to be a downtrend correction to an uptrend where, in this case, the S&P 500 went on to make all-time record highs and were just a hair's breadth away from making a new high. I suspect going into this next week, the S&P 500 will hit a new record high, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's north of 3,000. But a bump in the stock market is all predicated on what kind of happy talk may or may not come out of the G20 meeting, which is going on right now. And I can't predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what kind of tweet Trump is going to put out from day to day. Nor do I know what kind of counter misinformation is going to come out of President Xi in China. And so you take all this with a grain of salt. And you don't believe it all, but you do pay attention to it because it does drive the day-to-day -day price of the market, at least over the short term. And so when you hear me disregard the media, it isn't that I don't read it or pay attention to it. I just don't believe the core message of it. That's the important thing to consider here. I spend at least a minimum every day, even on weekends, at least three hours a day reading and analyzing and looking at current events. But there's a big difference between analyzing those events and really believing those events. The trick there is to be able to identify the reality from the hype. Now, that doesn't always help you over the short term because the markets will act irrationally, particularly over short periods of time. But over long periods of time, the truth has a way of working itself out. 
That's what economists call the price discovery mechanism and is very evident in the long-term performance of the stock market or of any individual stock. Because long-term, from a very long-term perspective, the ultimate value of that stock is its earnings rate. Over the short run, profits don't matter. Look at Bitcoin's performance six months ago. It was trading at $3,200. This week, it went up over 40% just in the week. And at one point, it was over $14,000. Has nothing to do with profits. Has nothing to do with underlying value. It's being driven totally by speculation. I'm not making a judgment call on the good or bad aspects of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin in particular. I'm just saying that from a fundamental standpoint, from a value-driven standpoint, from a profit-creating standpoint, there's been absolutely nothing of material reasoning that has occurred over the past three to six months to take Bitcoin from $3,000 to $14,000. It's occurred because investor sentiment has changed. Now, as far as the run that's occurred in the stock market over this past month, think back to the all-time new record high that the S&P set in April. There was a lot of enthusiasm. People had gotten over all their concerns about tariffs and the trade war, and it looked like maybe that was going to be resolved. And then there were all the people that had the fear of missing out because they sold at the bottom back in December. And then over those previous four months, the market had made a major recovery, gone on to hit a record high. So enthusiasm was up there. Investor sentiment was strong. And then boom, what happens? Well, the Chinese appear to be reneging on some of the previous agreements. So now Trump is ratcheting up his threats of more tariffs. And then, of course, we had the famous tweet that Trump put out. I think it was on a Wednesday or Thursday evening where he talked about imposing new tariffs on Mexico if they didn't do something about migrants coming across the U.S.'s southern border. Well, that sent the markets into a tizzy. And then there was a jobs report that didn't look so good and all types of fear-mongering from the media. You know, they build you up to think that you missed out on the rally, and they talk about how high the stock market is. That's the buildup of the greed and the enthusiasm part of the cycle. If you go back and look at a YouTube video that I put out in, I think it was in April, I talked about a Wall Street snow job. How just a few months previously, they were talking about we were headed for a recession and a big 20%, 30% crash in the market. And then now it's all happy talk. Well, that quickly faded in May, and the media starts playing up the negativity again. They're talking the market down. And as would be expected, investors got spooked and scared. The fear part of the cycle kicked in, and we saw the market drop some 7 or 8% from the highs in April until the low that we hit on June 3rd. So we started out this month with all types of fear and with a big rotation of people moving out of stocks and moving into what's perceived as safer investment opportunities like cash, like bonds, or precious metals. I took this downtrend as an opportunity to buy the dip because I'm not believing the short-term negativity that took place in May and early June any more than I believed it when it happened last fall. And that's because when I look at the underlying fundamental numbers, the valuations are reasonable. The bottom line is that in late May, early June, the market was in an oversold position. People were selling from a position of fear. Remember what I said about the price of a stock. It's derived from profits. And as long as profits are growing, that means that in the future, at some point in the future, those increasing profits will be reflected in the increasing price of the stock. 
the fact that simply profits are moving upward rationally tells you that over time, that's going to move the overall stock market in an upward direction. Now, what is also important to look at in the news cycle is not only whether the news itself is accurate, but on how it's affecting investor sentiment. If everybody believes a negativity that's not true and they all get fearful and they sell, and if we're not headed into something like a recession, that's exactly the time to buy. Because it doesn't mean that prices won't go lower. It doesn't mean that you may not lose money over the short term, but over the long term, it means that ultimately prices will go up again. And so as an investor, you can't predict the future. You don't know exactly how low or how high or exactly when the market's going to move. But as long as you're buying in at a price today that's lower than what a price is going to be into the future, then you know that you're going to make money. You're going to get a return on your assets. And that's how you build your wealth. What I found fascinating and what I blogged about and what I've talked about in this podcast here recently, but particularly over the past couple months, I've talked about investor sentiment. I've talked about the weekly survey that's put out by the Association of American Individual Investors. I've used that as a number of examples. And in other cases, I've talked about what the professionals are believing. And what I found fascinating over the last 60 days or so was the extreme amount of negativity and bearish sentiment. Retail investors have been very negative, as have been professional money managers. That meant that a lot of money was sitting on the sidelines. A lot of money was in cash or people, both professionals and retail investors, were starting to buy up things like utility stocks, bond funds, gold and silver. So as you saw the stock market moving lower, those other, quote, safe asset classes were moving higher. When I looked beyond the headlines and I dug down into the data and I actually ran the numbers, my reasoning led me to believe what I believed for a long time, and that's that we're not headed for a recession, that although economic activity across the globe is slowing, it's not necessarily a slowdown. In fact, whenever the media coins a phrase, you can usually assume that that part of the cycle was over, and even if it was true at one time, we're probably moving on to a different phase. And that's what occurred here recently when the global slowdown is starting to be called a slowbalization, right? Slowbalization instead of globalization. Yeah, those words are cute, they're witty, but they usually correlate very poorly to the overall direction of the stock market. So when you hear everybody talking about a slowdown that isn't happening, or when you hear people fearful of inflation, and so they're moving into asset classes like real estate or gold that perform well during inflation, but when I look at the numbers and I don't see any evidence of inflation, or when I see a bunch of investors piling into utility stocks because they want to collect a relatively higher dividend, and yet, when I look at the numbers, I don't see anything that necessarily justifies the extremely low rates that we're at right now. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised to seeing long-term rates actually moving up from where they are right now, not moving down. And so when I see the rationality of the data pointing in one direction, but I see the overall investor sentiment in another direction, that's a disconnect. And over the short term, I have no idea how long it'll play out or which direction things will move, but over the long run, I can be pretty assured that the market will eventually move in the direction of reason and rationality, and not long-term in the direction of the fickle investor sentiment. And that's because that sentiment is exactly fickle. It'll change on a dime. If we start getting happy talk out of the G20 meeting that's taking place this weekend, 
then all of a sudden, the same investors that a month ago were petrified that we we're going to have a trade war with all types of tariffs, that we're going to tear down the economy, those same investors will change their opinion on a dime. And it doesn't matter whether they're retail investors or professional investors, they'll change their opinion overnight and they'll flip on all the things they purchased, the gold, the bonds, the cash that they were in. They'll sell all that as the prices go down and they'll start jumping back into the stock market, which is already up seven or 8% from where these people sold it at. They're always trying to chase performance, but the gospel of investing that I wanna to preach to you is not to chase momentum, not to go with the flow and try and make short-term profits because that's far too risky. Look at Bitcoin. One day this week, it was at 13,000, almost $14,000. Within 24 hours, it had dropped $3,000. Then the next day or so, it was up another couple thousand. There's no rationality to that. You may get lucky, you may time it right, but you can't consistently do that. But what you can do consistently, and you don't have to be Einstein or Warren Buffett to do it, you don't try and get rich quick overnight. You try and build your wealth over time and so you invest in things where time is your ally, not your enemy. If you're chasing the momentum or you're trading off the headlines, then you've always got to stay ahead of the cycle. And you've always got to accurately predict not only its direction, but how long it'll last. If you contrast that with swing trading, where you're trying to time the market over a period of weeks or months, or in some cases years, then you take the element of time out of it. And so if you draw a conclusion that's based on a rational value chain of events, then more times than not, not, not every time, but more times than not, you'll be investing in an appreciating asset. And if you're willing to hold it long enough, you'll end up with more money than you started with. And that's always the key to building your net worth, having more money tomorrow than you had today, even if tomorrow is six months from now or two years. And so when you see misdirected investor sentiment, you have to be willing to move against the herd. You have to be willing to do what everybody else isn't doing. That's a very hard decision for people to make. As humans, we're hardwired to be conformists. Let's break all this down to a simple analysis of the valuations. The earnings on the S&P 500 for this year, for 2019, are estimated to be somewhere at $168 on average. Now, some people think they're gonna get in excess of 170. Some people think they might go down as low as maybe 165. But on average, assuming that there isn't a major black swan event that I don't know, nor does anyone else know, what black swan event is gonna happen or when it is gonna happen. But if I look at the real rational numbers, just looking at the middle line, earnings of the S&P 500, they're gonna come in somewhere around 168. If you divide that number into the current price of the S&P 500, you're gonna come up with a valuation of the overall stock market. It's what we call the price to earnings ratio. And right now that number's coming out at about 17.5. Now that is slightly higher than the historical average of 16. 16 is the number you always hear quoted. 16 is the long-term assumed valuation of the S&P 500 going back for a couple generations. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't be a lot higher nor a lot lower. When the S&P 500 was averaging a valuation of 16 times earnings, interest rates were a lot higher back then than they are today. On average, they were about 6.25%. And guess what? If you take the reciprocal 
of 6.25%, that's 1 divided by 0 0.0625, what you're calculating there is the valuation of the long-term treasury rate. And if you calculate that when the average 10-year bond is earning 6.25%, guess what? You come up with a valuation of 16 times. Non-coincidentally, that's exactly what the long-term valuation of the S&P 500 was over those same period of years. Remember, nothing occurs in a vacuum. Investors don't go out and simply buy treasury bills or go out and buy Apple stock. They don't do it willy-nilly or randomly. They make the risk assessments about the future based on the net present value of what their money could earn purely from interest. And so it's not a coincidence that over a long period of time that the valuation of the stock market and the valuation of bonds are somewhat similar. They're not going to be exact, but they're, they're definitely going to be correlated. And so if you look at the current valuation of a 10-year bond, when it's only paying 2%, it's not paying the old 6.25% that it did 30 years ago, it's simply paying around 2%, and you take the reciprocal of that as 1 divided by 0 0.02, you come up with a valuation of 50. You're paying 50 times earnings to own a 10-year bond at 2%. And so when you look at the stock market and you say, oh, this valuation's higher than normal. It's not the normal 16 times earnings. It's not astronomically higher than the average. And you would expect it to be higher than the average when you look at the correlating valuation of bonds. Bonds used to have a 16 times valuation. That was 30 years ago. Today, you're going to pay 50 times earnings. Those higher valuations on bonds pull up the valuation in the stock market. And so, is a 17, an 18, or even a 20 or 22 times earnings a high valuation for the stock market? Well, historically it's high, but it's not out of the realm of possibility when you consider how high valuations are for bonds. That's the truth of the matter. And over time, that truth is going to hold up better than the fickle nature of investor sentiment. And so by simply looking at the valuations, you can see that this market is headed for at least 3,000 on the S&P 500. And if we get happy talk out of the G20, we'll probably hit that next week or in the next two weeks. And if we don't, I could be wrong. You know, I said last year that we were going to hit 3,000 on the S&P 500. Now that didn't happen in 2018, but I think it's highly likely to happen this year. So that again, that's an example of being wrong in the short term but being correct over a longer period of time. And the reason now that we're going to hit 3,000 or shoot, I don't know, we could even go to 3,100 on the S&P 500 is because all that negativity I talked about, all that cash that's still on the sidelines, all the people that invested in bonds because they thought that interest rates were going to go incredibly low or they invested in gold because they think that inflation is going to skyrocket. Well, when the economy doesn't slow down, when we don't get high levels of inflation, when interest rates on the long end of the curve go up rather than go down, well, all the people that were invested in cash or in utility stocks or in gold, they will quickly change their opinion and they'll buy back into the stock market and they won't buy into it when the valuation was reasonable, when the valuation was, say, 16 times earnings. They'll start buying into it when it's at a record high, just like it is now, and then the media will start talking about how the market's hitting record highs, and more and more people will pile in because people are conformists. They're going to do what the crowd's doing. And so that valuation will go from 17 or 17 and a half times earnings 
up to maybe 18, 19, or 20 times. And along the way, maybe the earnings actually improve. They don't come in at 168, they come in at 170 or 172. Well, that drives the valuation even higher. The enthusiasm, the greed, everybody piles in and boom, that's when you hit the blow off record top and prices fall back down again. We're not there yet. The enthusiasm hasn't gotten high enough. Now that doesn't mean they shouldn't take profits right now. I started to take profits back in, uh, I don't know, end of March, early April. I'm positioning some things to start taking profits now that they're higher, but I'm not selling everything willy-nilly. I think there's still room to run for this market, particularly for emerging and international stocks which haven't paid off. I think that's likely to change, again, depending upon what kind of happy talk we get about the trade war and tariffs. But those markets are very much undervalued, and I expect them to be valued more in the future than they are today. Now, speaking of where opportunities still exist, I think the banking sector, the financial sector in general, the banking sector in specific, is an area that's underperformed unjustly. I think the earnings potential are there to drive the valuations higher. And so I wouldn't tell you to be piling into the general S&P 500 right now. As I mentioned, I think international emerging markets are offering a much better risk reward potential. But again, even on those, I wouldn't necessarily be piling in now. You should have been buying that over the preceding months. But what I do like, a sector of the U.S. economy that I think is stable and I think is undervalued is the banking sector. And this is something that I've believed for a long time now. In fact, I first started buying banking stocks in this particular cycle about two years ago. Now, some of those positions have done very well. Others have done really lousy. I'll give you an example. I bought J.P. Morgan a couple years ago. My return on that over the last couple years is well over 35%. I'm very happy with that position. But you know what? At about the same time or thereabouts, I purchased Goldman Sachs for virtually the same reasons that I purchased J.P. Morgan. Goldman Sachs is down probably over 5%. I'll give you another example. About six, eight months ago, I don't remember exactly when, maybe as much as a year ago, when we were experiencing one of the dips during 2018, I wanted to double down and increase my investments in the banking and financial sector for the same reason that I think it's a viable buy today. So I added to my positions by purchasing two exchange-traded funds. One was KRE, which invested in small regional banks. The other ETF was IAK. That's an ETF that invests in large insurance companies. Well, guess what? The regional banking sector, it's been a dog. It's down 15%. While on the other hand, the insurance sector is up over 12%. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. From day to day, I don't know if insurance is out going to perform regional banking. That's why I don't put all my money in one sector or one stock or one ETF. I diversify across many sectors and some of them pan out and some of them don't. I think that the financial sector in general still has room to run in this rally. And in particular, I think banking stocks could have a large upside, a good 10, 15, maybe 20% or more from where we are right now. It's not a sure thing. I can't predict the future. I don't offer specific investment advice on this podcast. I'm just telling you where I think things are likely headed. And so rather than putting your money into the S&P 500 right now, when it's at all-time record highs, I would be looking at other sectors that have a better risk-reward potential. I personally think banking is that sector. I'm going to give you the list of everything that I own right now. It's in alphabetical order. I'm not recommending anything. I'm not encouraging anything. 
I'm simply telling you what I own and I've just given you the rationale for why I own it. But if you're interested in my positions in the banking and financial sector, here they are, alphabetical order. Capital One, that's ticker symbol COF. Goldman Sachs, ticker symbol GS. Insurance sector ETF, that's IAK. Banking sector large cap ETF, KBE. Capital markets ETF, that's KCE. Regional banking, these are the small banking sector, that's ETF, KRE. And then finally, the general financial index from Vanguard, at ticker symbol VFH. Ah, you know what I left off the list? JP Morgan should be on there in the middle somewhere as well. So there you have it. Those are my eight positions in the financial sector. I've been in it for about two years now. There's been some winners. There's been some losers. Overall, I think it's a sector that still has a lot of upside potential. Well, hey, there you have it. Am I right or wrong? Well, there's no guarantees. Come on back for future episodes and we'll find out. Until then, as always, thank you for listening. This is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.